Father, we give you thanks and praise for rest. Uh, You allow us to recuperate even as we have our weekly schedules giving us rest at the end of the week. We ask that you would help us to keep this in mind as we seek to do your will. And we also want to give you thanks, as your word says we are to do constantly, for your mercy and your grace that you provide for us, that you extend in such a magnificent manner. We ask also as we get into the book of Hebrews that you would bless the word there, that you would multiply our understanding as we go through it. And we ask, Lord, that you would use it to further us in our discipleship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is it me or is there air conditioning sound or something going on? There is. Okay, well, is it? We'll we'll end up working on that. Okay. The book of Hebrews, (coughs) it was written to Jewish Christians or to Hebrews. And it helps to just look at the title. Uh, For centuries, it was called Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. But they have taken that out because they're came some higher criticism that said, well, maybe it wasn't the Apostle Paul because there are several things that are characteristics of the book that are not in, or excuse me, that are in other books and not in the book of Hebrews. For instance, when Paul opens 1 Corinthians, he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Ephesians 1.1, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. And in Hebrews, it doesn't start like that. So it is believed that maybe it was authored by someone else. It has been posited that it may have been Barnabas, who was thought to be well-versed in Greek. And the type of Greek that is used also, it is more of an elegant Greek that is spelled out through the book. And Paul wrote differently in his other epistles to the church and to individuals. And so this particular Greek version that we take our translation from, it seems to be a little more formal. It is also thought that maybe Apollos, remember Apollos who was instructed by Aquila and Priscilla, maybe he was the author of the book of Hebrews. And then also some people say that it was Aquila and Priscilla. And to make a point just about the authorship of this, I think that Paul the Apostle was indeed the author. It is believed that in Caesarea when he was there, according to the book of Acts, he had to go be on trial because the Jews thought that Paul brought into the temple area somebody who was a Gentile. And because of that, there was a riot and an uproar. And he ended up going up to Caesarea and being held there uh, to talk with Felix and Festus. It's all delineated in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 23 and 24, it talks about this trial that he went through. And it is believed that he wrote to the Hebrew Christians in Jerusalem during that two-year period because they were starting to waver a little bit in their faith. If you were a Hebrew, you would totally understand what they were going through, and especially if you understand the book of Leviticus or even in the book of Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, the, the five books, the Pentateuch, everything that's involved in that and keeping the Mosaic Covenant You are asking a Hebrew, a Jew, to take that covenant and shove it to the side and just say, now I'm going to follow Christ. And one thing that you can know about not only the book of Hebrews, but about us, we don't like to change. And they were 
understanding that if I'm going to follow Christ, I have to change. I am no longer going to be going to the temple and offering sacrifices at the temple. I am going to be following Jesus Christ the way he wants me to. Now, with that, by extension, for us, it's hard to change. We don't like change. We like things static. We don't like our worlds to be interrupted too much. You know, when, I, and when I've traveled the world here in different areas, whether for pleasure or for ministry, I, I see how people, they're completely in a mode of this is the way we do it, and we do it no other way. And if you try to do something a different way, there's going to be trouble. And we all have traditions. We all have actions that we carry out. Like, for instance, a little thing for me. When I was away, I missed my morning cup of mocha. But I'd have coffee. And it's just like, you know, it's a cup of coffee, but it's like disruptive a little bit. And how am I going to satisfy this? And I ended up finding a place where I could get a mocha. And that's a tradition I have. Get up, get a little bit of coffee. Coffee is good. Coffee makes us happy in the morning. Coffee gets us going. And, and so that's just a little tradition, you know, that I have. Well, what about our lives? There is always going to be this tension, this tension that the world is going to pull on you and say, be more like us. And the word says, do not be more like the world, pulls you in the opposite direction. and says, do not love the world or the things of the world. And we are to forsake those things, and yet they bring us tremendous pleasure. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, all those things that are involved with the flesh, we don't like to give them up. Christ says, pick up your cross and carry it daily. That's what we're called to do, actually, in Romans chapter 12. It says that that we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our spiritual worship. And so to change our traditions, the way things were to the way that they're supposed to be, we don't want to do it. And Paul was encouraging these Hebrews in the same vein saying, look, now you have requested to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's going to be difficult. But in Paul, when he is the author, I believe, of this book, he always starts out in this way where he gives theology. He just, lots of theology. He just banks it up and says, here's a chunk of theology. Here's a chunk of theology. Like, for instance, in chapter 1, you have the theology of Jesus Christ. Christology is what is involved in Hebrews chapter 1. And he just nails that. And he's doing it for the Hebrew who is used to expecting a Messiah who is supposed to come from the Old Testament. And Paul says, well, this is him and this is what he is like. And there's at least seven different characteristics in chapter 1 that point us to who Jesus Christ is and what his characteristics are. And so we want to make sure that we understand that Paul is the one who set this up and at the end of the book chapter 10 and on like for instance chapter 10 he begins with therefore brethren and Paul uses that through all of his other epistles and you might say well why do you believe that the apostle Paul is the author if it wasn't the same Greek well again when he wrote it probably in Caesarea one of his traveling companions was Dr. Luke and Dr. Luke, being educated, would have had down this elegant Greek. And he probably took the Hebrew letter and he translated it into Greek because that was a common language throughout the entire known world at that time. And so everybody took it. So you have this elegance with his style being incorporated into Scripture. 
And God used that. And that's why you have the theology of Paul in there. You have some of the sayings of Paul in there. You just don't have the opening of it. Because if Luke was going to deliver the book of Hebrews, he wouldn't say Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Luke wasn't one to necessarily talk about himself a lot. And so, and that's part of the humility of following Christ. It's, you just set that letter out there and this is the letter of Paul. And so that's how I believe it happened. Now, Hebrews gives us a thorough description, as I was saying, of Jesus, that he is superior to the old ways and to the former things. In the past, God used spokesmen like Moses and Aaron and Joshua. But in these last days, as we will read, he has spoken to us by his son. And he talks about the priesthood as well. And we'll get into that and we'll, we'll find out about Melchizedek and who he was. But Jesus is the great high priest. He is superior in his priesthood to the old Levitical priesthood. And there are some issues, or really the big issue, the big problem for the Jews that Paul was addressing here that I alluded to, was the fact that they were coming out of the system and they were expected to follow Christ in the way Christ wanted them to follow. And they had to forsake everything else because these Jews who got saved, they wanted to feel comfortable holding on to their old ways. And so what they wanted to do was take the Old Testament law and incorporate that with the New Testament faith. Just combine the two. And so if you celebrate the festivals and you're involved in, with circumcision, you circumcise all the male children and you follow everything in the law and you believe in Jesus Christ, everything will be just fine. And Paul is going, no, no, no. If you go over to the book of Galatians, in Galatians, he gets so adamant. And I've mentioned this before. It's this group. And what came out of this is this group called the Judaizers. They say, in order to be holy and separate, unto God. You want to follow all these rules and regulations from the Old Testament and believe in Jesus Christ. And they were called the Judaizers. And if you didn't follow them, they would persecute the believers. If we were in that same state, they would persecute us. They could even, you know, um, uh, give us lashes, things like that, just like the Jews were doing. And so to avoid persecution, the Jews said, hey, it's just easier to just follow this guy that's talking like that, you know, and telling us these things. And so that's what they would do. Let's just take the easy road. And Christ tells us in Philippians chapter 1, it has been given to us as a privilege to suffer for Christ. And so if we're looking at Paul, and Paul is consistent here, he's saying, do not follow their ways. Remember also Paul and Barnabas, they ran into sharp opposition with the Judaizers. And they said, you have to be circumcised and follow the law in order to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas, they, it, the word that is used in the scriptures is a sharp disagreement. In other words, they were yelling at each other. Could you imagine two Christians yelling at each other? Really? That, yeah, that actually takes place, huh? <clears throat> and so they, they were going back and forth. They were not going to do that. I'll tell you what, I'm going down to Jerusalem and I'm talking to the elders down there and those guys who are apostles and we're going to settle this thing once. Fine, let's go down there. And that's what happened. And they went down and Acts chapter 15 spells out what James said, speaking for the church and the apostles down there. He spells out what they were supposed to do and not to allow people to come in and make the Gentiles follow the Old Testament law. And so 
Paul was just great about making sure the doctrine remained pure and the incorporation of the Judaizers and their theological beliefs did not come into the church. Now, with that being a problem, this tension was ongoing, but Paul remained devout in his mission. But with us, for instance, Daryl, you sent me that email. Thank you for that email. There's some inf- it had to do with Bernie Sanders and somebody getting involved in uh, uh, an appointment by President Trump. And Bernie Sanders brought up the question, do you believe that Muslims will go to hell? Now, this is a political avenue. And so there's a big article about it. And Daryl sent me that. And then they revealed some stuff in this particular article. For instance, if you thought everybody in here believed that people are going to hell? Like how many Christians believe that individuals who don't have Christ are going to hell? Well, in the poll that was taken here, out of 35,000 adults, the Pew Research Center Religious Landscape Study of 2014 It said those who believe in hell are only 58%. Now, this is where the theology comes in. I want to assure you, if somebody does not become a disciple of Jesus Christ, they are going to hell. Christ said it. Christ said, if you do not repent of your sins, you're not going. If you're not a disciple, if you don't take up your cross, you're not going. And so 58% of believers want to take a view that is of the world. A loving God would not send people to hell. They forget that he's a just God, right? And so they want to incorporate the doctrine of the world into the doctrine of the Bible. Um, This I've mentioned before, too. We would go through a discipleship series, and I once took a survey of how many people thought that were in the series, and at this particular time, there's probably 25 people going through this discipleship series. We took a poll of how many people thought we become angels when we die. 35% of the people in the poll in our church thought we become angels when we die. That is not scriptural, just like the doctrine of hell. We want to make sure that we are scriptural in our beliefs. And there's this other belief. How many people believe that the religions of the world can also lead to salvation with God? And they did a poll here. Two-thirds say many religions can lead to eternal life. In 2014, it was 67%, almost 70% of Christians thought other religions lead to Christ. And you might say, well, that's awful narrow-minded, isn't it? Didn't Jesus Christ say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He was claiming exclusivity, and the world doesn't like that. And so these are the doctrines that we have to be aware of that can just creep into the church. Like another one is uh, the doctrine of total annihilation. That means when we die, a loving and just God would not assign punishment forever to an individual. He would eventually just annihilate them. And that is not a scriptural doctrine. Two places in scripture it talks about that. One of them is Matthew chapter 25. That a punishment is eternal. 
And life is eternal. It never ends. We are eternal beings. We did have a beginning, but we will have no end. And these are doctrines of the church we don't want to water down. And this is what Paul was fighting against with the Judaizers. So that's why this book, this particular book, is relevant. Because the Judaizers were corrupting the church back then. And today, the world and other religions are corrupting pure doctrine. And so we want to make sure we have our doctrine down. Paul told Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely, because if you do, you will save not only yourself, but your hearers as well. So how is how important is it that we have our doctrine down? It is paramount. We have to have this doctrine down. And Paul begins, when he gets to the book of Hebrews here, he begins with Jesus Christ, because That's it. That's who we need. He is the most important. Without Jesus Christ, nothing else matters. He is the one that is the Messiah. So his goal in writing this was to encourage the Hebrew believers, but also to bring them back in line, to gently encourage them to get back in the road that they were in. And he offered them five warnings. He said, these warnings are going to come to you. Now, I've looked up a couple of different authors on studies on this, and I'll give you a few of them. But these five warnings are listed here in chapter 2, chapters 3 and 4, chapters 5 and 6, chapters 10, and chapters 12. And these are the danger of drifting. That, you know, when I went with my wife, and we were down uh, in the Caribbean, and they have this boat, right? And you go out in this boat, and you go scuba diving. And if they don't anchor the boat, guess what happens to the boat? It just takes off. And in some of these areas, the current is pretty strong. And you can find out that you're out there all by yourself. There was one time I came up under the boat. I was the last guy. And there's no ladder down. And I'm going, are you going to put the ladder down? Can I get back on the boat? And, you know, they, if they wanted to take off, I would have just been drifting around the island but they realized they didn't have the right count on the boat and so they put the ladder back down they let me come up but this idea of drifting imagine if you were upstream from niagara falls and you didn't have a good mooring line what would happen to you right over the cliff because you would drift down we run that risk in our christian walk The Christian walk has to be proactive. It doesn't happen just by osmosis. You know, osmosis is the net movement of water through a semi-permeable membrane. It just moves. It just drifts through this membrane, and it cleans up the water, and that's the way that it just goes. Well, we will drift, and we will drift away from God if we are not active. Now, what do you mean by being active? It means... We're in the word. We have a devotional life. We are attending church. We are supporting missions. We are encouraging others in their daily walk. We are going to studies. We, Christ is our life. That's what we're supposed to be as disciples where we follow him the way that he told us to follow. And if we're not doing that, we have this danger of drifting. I can't tell you how many people, first it was like, Let me digress a little bit. Do you know how many times a month is considered normal attendance in church? How many times would you guess? Yes, you're correct. Twice a month is considered normal attendance in church. Now, I'm not saying this that 
you better come to church or else you're going to hell. That's, that's not what I'm trying to communicate. What I'm trying to communicate is God lovingly sent his son to die for us that we would know the way of salvation, that we would understand the joy that life has to offer. And it only comes through following Christ and being self-sacrificial. And if we do that, we have that unending joy, that unspeakable joy, and it will last not only for this life, but for the life to come. When we're not walking with the Lord, when we're just drifting, if we're just doing one or two Sundays a month or maybe an occasional Wednesday, we're drifting. That's the way it is. Unless we're involved every day and praying to the Lord and giving thanks and being in his word, we're drifting. And so we have to make sure that we are actively involved and not drifting. The second one is the danger of not entering into rest, not entering into Jesus Christ. And this deals with the Sabbath day, that the Sabbath day was holy and you're supposed to remember that day and not work on that day. Remember for us, it would be Saturday, but we don't worship Christ on Saturday. We consider every day the same as Sunday. And so we're supposed to worship every day. And also there is in chapters five and six, the danger of not going on to maturity. People who don't mature, in their faith. Hebrews chapter 6 gets into this. By this time, you ought to be teachers. But yet, you know, he wanted to teach them things that they yet did not understand or were not able to comprehend because they had not been walking the life of discipleship. I mean, some of the things that Paul wrote, they were hard to understand. You're like, what are you talking about? And foolish and ignorant people would distort them back in the day of Paul. They still do that today. They'll get into scripture and they'll distort scripture, people who mean well, but they distort it, they twist it just enough to mean something it does not mean at all. And so we want to make sure that we are able to go on to maturity when we hear false doctrine, we go, that's not right. Where is that in scripture? I've never heard that before. And you need to be able to say that or gently instruct somebody. You don't have to rebuke them. You are a false teacher, my brother. You don't have to do anything like that. You just, you know, you work with each other. We're on this walk together and we're all going to get something wrong. But we use each other as these guides like, okay, yeah, that's where we're supposed to be. And the Holy Spirit works through us to make sure that that happens. Then there was the danger in chapter 10 of willful sin. That those people who are Hebrews that willfully participate in sin and say, this is okay, God will forgive me. God does not forgive that he says you know there may be those in galatians chapter 6 that are caught in a sin and then there are those who say i'm going to practice this sin and god forgives me and everything is lawful for me to carry out and so we want to make sure we don't fall into that trap as well saying well this is okay for me to do and i can just accept it that's where we don't want to give up our traditions so to speak our ways of life then chapter 12 deals with the danger of indifference to the point of denial like, whatever, you know, it's just, I just well, it's just so contentious and I don't like the arguing, you know, so I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm not going to take a stand, you know, kind of like that milk to- toast person. You need to be tolerant of all views that are out there. After all, you might offend somebody. You know, the gospel is offensive. I mean, you tell, just try it sometime. Go up to a total stranger. Do you know you're going to hell if you don't have Jesus Christ? Do you think they're going to be offended? 
Yes, they are, but you want to lovingly bring them the gospel. You want to tell them, look, you have this opportunity. And the world, not only this world, but the world to come awaits you, and God wants to bless you with it. But the reality is, if we don't have Christ, we're not going. And so we want to make sure that we make our calling and election sure, that there's no question. You don't have to sit there and go, I don't know if I'm really saved. Well, is there any fruit in your life? Well, yeah, I have some pomegranates and I have some citrus over here and there's some avocados. Well, yeah, there's fruit like everywhere and that's good. And you want people to look at your life and say, man, you got all kinds of fruit in your life. What are you talking about? It's just wonderful. And you might think, well, it's bad fruit. People will know you by your fruit. They will turn to you and say, man, you got a lot of fruit. You're walking with the Lord and you go, You think I, I'm just, you know, I just try to do my part. Oh, no, you got plenty of fruit. If you want to find out if you have fruit, just ask somebody. Just go up to them and say, do you think I have any fruit? Ask your spouse. Do you think I'm walking with the Lord? You know, your spouse will probably be truthful. They may not be so uh, elegant in their speech. They could just come right out and say, no, I don't think you are walking with the Lord. Or they could say, well, you know. I see a lot of fruit in your life, especially love. I see that love just rules through your life. So go ahead and ask your spouse, do I have fruit in my life? Or ask your family members, your mother, your father, your sisters, your brothers, am I walking with the Lord the way that I'm supposed to? And this is what Paul is doing for the Hebrews again. Let me say it one more time. He starts with the theology, and then he goes into the practical application that This is how you're supposed to walk. So we get down our theology first, and after that, we can avoid the drifting, the doubting, the uh, deformity that comes into our walks, the despising and the denying that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and that his truth stands. So that's a pretty long introduction, but let's get into the book of Hebrews. Now, what I'm going to do is just read through Hebrews, the first chapter, and then I'm going to go back and kind of delineate the seven things about Jesus Christ there. And I have, it looks like, the King James Version. I must have been up late. Well, I'm going to read the King James Version this morning here. I don't know if you can bring that up or not, Daryl. And I'll go back and explain it later. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had made by himself or when he by himself had purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they for unto which of the angels said he at any time thou art my son this day have I begotten thee And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. 
And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish but thou remainest and they all shall wax old as doth a garment and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up and they shall be changed but thou art the same and thy years shall not fail but to which of the angels said he at any time sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. So I'll, I'll end it right there. But this is the overview of the chapter that and the book, that Christ is superior, that he is better. And these seven things, I'm going to list them for you, and then we're going to go through them, is number one, Jesus speaks. Number two, Jesus is God's son. Number three, Jesus is not an angel. Number four, Jesus is God. Number five, Jesus is to be worshipped. Number six, Jesus is the creator. And number seven, Jesus is eternal. Now I'm going to go back through the NIV on this. And here we have that Jesus speaks. In verse one, it says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many, many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Now, while I was away, I went through an audio book. And this audio book was Dreams and Visions. And it's authored, what, what's, um, Patty, where are you? Tom's last name? What's Tom's last name? No, not, not, not Tom. I know that, Tom. Yeah, it'll come to me. But Tom wrote this book. And he has a ministry. He was a pastor for, I think, 19 years. And he has a ministry to Muslims. And he kept on hearing all these stories how Christ would appear to Muslims. And so he wrote a book about it. And it's about, I don't know, 30 chapters or so. And I got to sit and just listen to this book. And these miraculous dreams, like this one particular case, this pastor, Tom, he was walking through this uh, Muslim marketplace and somebody saw him that was a Muslim. And he started smiling at him, which is not good if you look like, you know, an Anglo-Saxon guy, a European, walking through this marketplace. And he was in an Arab country. And then he started, he saw him go through the marketplace and he started following him through the marketplace like this. And, you know, if you're a pastor following Christ in a Muslim country, you start going, I don't know if this is so good or not. And he goes, you, it's you. And <laughs> What? It's me? Yes, you. I have been dreaming about you. You were the one that was going to come to this marketplace and you're wearing the same thing and Jesus told me that you would be here and that I'm supposed to listen to you. And this book is filled with stories like that where people will have these dreams for seven days in a row. And it's Jesus that shows up and talks to these people 
in the dreams and they remember every vivid detail of these dreams and these guys would show up. He had several encounters like that, like, oh, you're here. I was waiting for you to come. You must come and talk to my wife and to my children because in the dream, the guy was told that bring this man to your house and he is going to tell you about me. Jesus is talking to them and you are to listen to him and so is your wife and so is your children. And it's just a fantastic book. You go, Wow, Jesus is speaking still in these last times and they would have visions and they would open up doors and this guy would go witnessing with Muslims who had converted and become disciples of Jesus Christ and they'd go to the mosque and goes, come on, we're going to go to the mosque today and we're going to witness about Jesus Christ. And he gets Tom there and, and they're witnessing about Jesus Christ. He goes, by the way, Tom, I thought I should probably tell you this. I didn't tell you this before, but we could get arrested for doing this. Isn't it great? It's a good day to be arrested. And so they would go and they would talk to all these Muslims coming out of the mosque. And then the imams would get a little upset. And then so they would exit and just story after story, how Jesus would speak to them in dreams. And this is now. This isn't something that is taking place back 200 years ago or 600 years ago. This is something that is happening to the Muslim people now. And what he said in his book that what you see on the news is really not the full picture. These Muslims, these Arab uh, folks are getting saved. And after going through this book, I'm going, wow, what's my heart like with the Muslims when I hear about them coming into this area? Do I start going... What are they doing here? You know, or am I saying God loves them just as much as he loves me or anyone else? And we've got to reach out to those people. So Jesus is the one who is speaking now. Now, Jesus is the living word, but we have the written word as well. And that's, if you never hear or never have a vision or never hear the voice of God, anything like that, we have what he has said It is right in front of us. And so we can read the works of the apostles and those apostles who wrote down the very words of Christ, and we can be sure what Jesus is saying to us. But in these last days, verse 2 again, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Now, just on verses like this, I could take another two or three weeks But I'm not going to do that. That would be like dumping the whole load on you at one time. So I'm just going to stick on the centrality of Jesus Christ. And the number one thing is here that is being told to us is that he speaks. He is the audible word of God. He is the one that set everything in motion. Secondly, Jesus is God's son. Now... In verse 3, it reads, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, there's a little bit of metaphorical language there. In verse uh, 3, where it says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. It doesn't mean the Father is on his throne, and the Father has a right hand, And Jesus sat down on the right hand. It doesn't mean that. It means the position of favor or authority. That Jesus sitting down, resting at the right hand, he has all the authority and power vested in him that the Father wants him to have. All the attributes of God are in him. 
And so, like I said, I could spend just weeks on these other verses that are in here. But he is also God's son. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So when you see Jesus, you have seen the Father. What do you mean, show him? Show me the Father. Show us the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Didn't Jesus say that? So when you see Jesus, he is the exact representation. He is the Son of God. That is his position of authority. And the firstborn Son, so to speak. And back in, if you were a Jew and you understood this from the Hebrew society, the firstborn male child would get the double portion of the inheritance. And Jesus is the first fruits of the harvest which is out there. He has all authority and all power. He is the one that is preeminent. And that's what he is telling these Hebrew believers. Like, so who is this Jesus? In here? He is the Messiah. And these are the characteristics of the Messiah, the Son of God. He has spoken. God himself has spoken. And he is the one that has all the authority and all the blessing and all the power that comes from the Father. Now, if you're somebody who just said, I worship God, Elohim, right? Or that's the plural form of God, but Eli is God himself, or El, that is God in the Hebrew. And if you understood that, and all of a sudden you have this son who is God too, you're going to say, you worship false God because there is only one God, but then comes the doctrine of the Trinity, right? And Jesus says when he comes to earth, if I do not go, the the Spirit will not come, but the Spirit is God. Acts chapter 5, we know that the Holy Spirit is God. And so that kind of messed them up too. They're going... Wait a second, God is one. Why are you telling me that there is three? And we do that today, right? Explain to me the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, I can't really explain it, but it just says it in Scripture. And to just dice up the Trinity, it, it's too far beyond our understanding. We know that all three are God. They are all of the same essence, but they have three personalities, right? But the personalities are all God. And you're going, what the why does... I just don't get it. Don't worry if you don't get it. All we have to understand is that the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and they are one in spirit, and they are one in purpose. And God the Father does not have a physical body where Jesus is going to sit down at the right hand. When we get to heaven, guess who we're going to see? Jesus. He's the one that's up there. But will we know the Father and the Spirit? Yes. Well, how? I don't know how this is going. I just, you know, there are questions that even I have. How is this going to work out? I have no idea. But scripture says that. And we get into error when we start to say, well, what? Jesus, you know, he's supposed to be God. We can't understand that. What's going on? That just makes multiple gods. And, And we get into these arguments about it. It's just better to accept what we do not understand. We know that Jesus is God, and I'm going to give you the deity scriptures on that. And if Jesus is God, and the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, then we just take that understanding and say, Scripture declares it. I don't totally understand it, but Scripture declares it. So Jesus is God's Son. Going on. Number three, Jesus is not an angel. Now, there is a religion that states that Jesus is actually Michael the archangel that became incarnate. Now, most of you know what religion that is. What religion is that? It's the Jehovah Witnesses. 
They believe that Jesus was actually a spirit being before Michael the archangel. And the whole chapter, pretty much, in Hebrews chapter 1, is a finger in the eye to that doctrine. He is not an angel. And as I stated in the introduction, we don't become angels. They are completely different than us. And they are completely different than Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And he makes that case here. Verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And so Paul is saying, look, he's not an angel. He is way above the angels. He almost, well, he does. He uses a superlative word, superior. You know, that's where you get into the hyperbole. It's kind of like when Jesus said, uh, the speck in your eye, take out your own plank. He was saying, there is a beam in your eye, not just a little piece of sawdust in there. That's hyperbole. Well, this is a superlative where he says, he is much superior to the angels. He is not an angel. If anybody comes along and says, Jesus is an angel. Say, ah, where does it say that in the Bible? I know from Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4, he is much superior to the angels. And if somebody says, well, that's because he was given a little more glory and honor. No, uh, sorry. If, if you just continue on that, you can see that that is not the case. Now, I'm going to go on to the next one. Jesus is God. I'm going to give you these deity scriptures here. Now, first of all, if you know your Bible, in John chapter 1, verse 1, you know that verse, right? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word, I can almost hear it. There you go. And the Word was God. Now, the Word, if, if you understand the context in which this, this is delivered, the Word for Word in the Greek is logos. The word logos, the Greeks understood that to be the divine principle that ordered the universe, the creative force that ordered the universe. So Paul comes along and Paul talks about it and John, in the book of John, he says this logos is the one that created the whole world. It is the word of God who is Jesus and the world became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what the book of John tells us. So when he was talking to the Greeks, when John did, he talked to the Greeks. He said, this is Logos. This is what is the creative principle throughout the world. This is God. This is Jesus is what he is saying. So in the beginning was a word and the word was with God. and The word was God, right? And so we have that particular scripture. But if you went farther in the book of John, and of course, John presents Jesus as God. Matthew how does Matthew present him? As king. How does Mark present him? Through his gospel? As servant. How does Luke present him? As man. So if you read those different perspectives that are given in the gospels, you get the full picture, at least that is sufficient for us, you get the full picture of who Jesus Christ is. And if you go on to John chapter 20, verse 28, it says there that Thomas, who was doubting Thomas, remember, unless I can stick my fingers in his hands and his fist in his side, I'm not going to believe that he's God. So he shows up, materializes, you know, Scotty beam me up. He beams up into the, the room right there. And Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. Now, by the way, that is not changed in the New World Translation. 
of the Jehovah Witnesses. And when I've used that verse, at least on one occasion, I gave it to him and I said, is Thomas calling Jesus God? I said, go look it up. And the, the individual went and looked it up and he never came back out. He called up the elders from his... Uh, little Jehovah Witness Kingdom Hall, and he was so disturbed by it, he didn't know what to do. He didn't want to talk to me at all after that. You know, Scripture is powerful. When you when you give a particular verse and it just rocks somebody's world, like truth comes to them, they're just, oh no, what have I been following here? This is all wrong, and it is a shock. It is a total shock. But you can see God's word is active and sharper than a double-edged sword. It just goes in there and slices. But then the, the leaders of his kingdom hall came over and just plastered it over. Don't worry about it. That's not what it is. And, you know, it's just a mess. But Jesus is God. Then Romans chapter 9, verse 5, when Paul is making the case that what benefit is there to being a Jew? And he says, well, much in every way, for theirs are the patriarchs from whom is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. So even Paul calls him God. I had one guy ask me once, Jesus never says that he is God. Oh, contraire. He says that if you do not believe my words, believe the works that I do. I am the Son of God. He calls himself the Son of God all the time. Then Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 2, 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Titus 2, 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. And this is God the Father speaking. We haven't got gotten there yet but it says but about the son he says your throne oh god so god the father is referring to the son and he says your throne oh god will last forever and ever and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom first john chapter 5 verse 20 we know also that the son of god has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true even in the son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Revelation chapter 22, verses 13 through 16. Jesus starts out by saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he takes that from actually Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6. And he ends it by saying, I, Jesus. He, he's the one speaking. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And he says, I, Jesus. He is equating himself with the God of the Old Testament. And then you have the I am statements of Jesus. He says over and over, who has sent you? I am. Which one is Jesus? I am. He says, I am the God of the burning bush. I mean, over and over and over. And those are just a few of the examples that are given that Jesus is God. So that's what we understand from the book of Hebrews. And it is Paul the Apostle who's trying to convince the Hebrews, look, I'm telling you, this is God, the Messiah. He came down here for us. Can you understand this? Let me show you from the Old Testament. And he went through the Old Testament and gave them Bible studies. And it's convincing them to stick with the solid doctrine. And this is what he's doing here. Also, Let's see, let's go on to verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Do you see, it's almost like these rhetorical questions are coming up. To which of the angels did he ever say that you are my son? The answer is none. It's a rhetorical question, right? So if you read it in context here, we can understand that Jesus is in fact the son of God. And by the way, for the Jews, they really have no excuse if they know their scripture. I want you to turn to this one. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. Even the author of the Proverbs, and 
chapter 30, he knew God had a son in the Old Testament, right? Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. It says, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know it. And so even the Old Testament scholars would have known. The Jewish scribes, the Pharisees, the the teachers of the law, they would have known that God had a son based on this particular verse. Then Jesus is to be worshipped. In verse 6 it says, And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. And so he's making this distinction here between angels who are not to be worshipped and Jesus who is to be worshipped. And there's only one who deserves worship, and that is God. But about the son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions and anointed you with the oil of joy. Again, there's so much there that we could get into. But just know this. Not only are the angels to worship him, but we are. That's what we do when we come in and we sing praise songs, right? How, how fervently do you worship God? Do we hear you out of all the other voices in church when you're singing? No, I don't want to be heard. I don't want to put too much effort into it. Just let your voice ring. I don't sing very well. It's all right. Who does? You know, we all, at some point, we lose our vocal cords. They, they get old. They get a little shaky. We get a little vibrato, and we don't intend for that to be there. We're just supposed to worship. And how do we worship? We worship not only by our voices, by the raising of our hands, by praying to God, by giving thanks to him, by declaring all of his works, that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. We do that. We worship God by doing that. We're, we're supposed to worship God in the humility of our hearts. We're supposed to walk daily just saying, God, you are so good. You are the God of heavens, the God of earth. There is none like you. There are so many worship songs that have come out of the scriptures. It is so great if you know what those are. And I come from that era where the scripture was the songs we would sing. And when you'd sing that, sometimes people say, Oh, they're so simple. They're just these praise choruses. You're just singing scripture. That's all. You know, it's, it's like, no, I can make up this real lengthy verbose song and that speaks of God. Well, how about just the scripture? You know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Alleluia. You know, that's scripture, right? And there's so many in the Psalms and in the Proverbs and throughout. I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider fell into the sea. Remember that was Miriam's praise song to the Lord. We're supposed to sing and make melody in the heart, right? We're not supposed to go around singing the Grateful Dead songs. Yeah, you think about it. And I used to have all kinds of disco songs in my head, you know. Walking in rhythm, walking in rhythm. You know, I, I would have that in my head. And, and I want the praise songs to be in my head. And, and see, this is where we have to transform our behavior. Do you mean I can't listen to the Rolling Stones anymore? I'm going to give you a secret. I, I grew up with the monkeys, right? 
I, I love the monkey. I love the monkeys, you know. Mary, Mary. I was listening to that when I was away. Ah, oh, it's just kind of nostalgia, you know, but I, I put it away. Patty goes, what are you listening to? I said, the monkeys. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's fun to go back, you know, because it, it has some meaning as far as nostalgia is concerned. But our day-to-day life, we're supposed to be having these praise songs in our head. And, it, you know, I love all kinds of music. I've always been involved with music whether it's classical music, I've listened to country for a while, you know, I, I love the Beatles and all of that, but it does not compare. It makes me feel good, boots, scoot, and boogie. You know, you want to put those boots out there and just have a great little time, but it doesn't do anything as far as your relationship with God. And God wants us to sing and make melody in our hearts to him. That means you have to have a whole bunch of praise songs in your heart. That's what you want to have on your phone. It's no longer really an iPod or anything like that. We're going to the phone technology and we'll be blessed if we do that. So we're supposed to worship Jesus Christ himself. We know that the Magi did this. We know that the woman at the tomb in Matthew chapter 28 verse 9 did this. We know that the apostles also saw him in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 17 and they worshiped him. The disciples worshiped him in Luke chapter 24 verse 51. A man born blind in John chapter 9 verses 37 through 38 and he worshiped Jesus Christ. And it just goes on and on and on. Now, Jesus is also the creator or the creator God. In verse 10, he also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. And this is the father speaking about the son. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. So he's telling us what's going to happen in the future. But he says, you are the one Jesus that actually made this. Yeah, I, I'm curious. When he created Adam, did he actually sculpt him? You know, get a little clay on there and get that nose just right and, you know, the ears. And Did he actually do that? Did he go to the, the Pishon or the Euphrates and grab some mud and throw it up there and just start molding? Is that how he did it? Or did he just speak Adam into existence? I I don't know how he did it exactly, but Jesus is the one who did it. He's the one that created Adam, and he's the one that reached into Adam and took his rib, just kind of pulled it out of there, right? I've got a rib, haven't Adam's asleep. Just wait. And he created Eve, right? And he brought Eve to Adam and he goes, whoa, man. And that's why she got the name woman. And it it was just fantastic. Maybe that's a little bit of an embellishment, but it's something like that. You know, Jesus created everything. The first humans, he's the one responsible. I can't wait to see what the next universe, the next world's going to be like. You know, you go to different parts of the world and you look at the plants like i am fascinated by plants i look at them and just how god created them and how he makes the flowers and if you look real close you go how did he do that you know it's just incredible how he and you look at the fish that are down there the strangest looking fish you would ever see and then you see these clear things that just float through the water when you're scuba diving you go what in the world is that and there's there so many out there, they don't know how many there are. Things, the fish and the things that are floating out there. Jesus created them all. 
Just think what the next world is going to be like. It is going to be fantastic. Just think what your body is going to be like. You're going to be able to go, right? You're going to have that handsome look, that beautiful look. Your nails are going to be perfect. The hair is going to be perfect. Everything is just going to be perfect in that life to come. So Jesus is the creator. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, invisible and uh, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So Jesus created it all. Then going on, Jesus is eternal. Verse 12, you will roll them up like a robe, talking about creation, like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same. Your years will never end. Now, some might argue, well, but he was created and then he will never die. Now, that's not what the whole of scripture says. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. By the way, this is a scripture song. Now unto the king immortal. If, if you know these songs and you're able to sing them all the time, I mean, your, your heart is filled with joy and the TSA won't mess with you at all. You know, they won't be a problem. And so these, these are the things. And unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, uh, Mighty God, Father of Eternity. And that's better translated, um, uh, translation in there. And Prince of Peace. And so Jesus is the Father, quote-unquote, of Eternity. And John eight fifty eight. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am that means he was saying, I am the God of the burning bush who appeared to Moses. So these are the seven things that the book of Hebrews just lays out very clearly to those Jews who had become disciples of Jesus Christ. And he wanted to make sure they had the theology down first. And we want to walk away with that. We know that Jesus is to be worshipped, that he is God, that he is the creator. He is the one that is set above all things, has been given power and authority. He is the head of the church. And so if we walk just beginning with that, we are on a solid foundation. And we go on to the next couple of doctrines that he wants to give them and going into the priesthood and all of that. He's making sure that the Jews understand my encouragement to everyone that is here and even to myself is not to be taken away by the foolishness of the world, not to take the worldly doctrines and incorporate them into our own belief system. If somebody says, do you believe that people are going to hell without Jesus Christ? You can confidently say yes, but he provides a way that everybody who wants to can go. Unfortunately, not everybody chooses that path. And so this is our task go into all the world and make disciples, make sure we watch our life and doctrine closely so that we may have some part in the salvation of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it reveals to us the secrets that have been hidden for so long, the mystery, namely, of your son, Jesus, the Messiah, who came here to be that sacrifice that we might have salvation of our souls, the forgiveness of sins. Help us to be encouraged in this, Lord. Give us words of wisdom to speak when we come across others. Help us to be those disciples that you desire us to be. And if we are lacking in some way, we know that we can call upon you for your mercy and your grace. For you have so loved us, Lord. And help us to keep that love ever at the forefront of our minds. 
We give you thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen.